A pleasant Tuesday to you. This is Ozarks at Large for April 11th, 2023. I'm Kyle Callums. I'm Matthew Moore. Ahead today, the Battle of Fayetteville took place 160 years ago this month as Confederate soldiers tried to retake the city in a pre-dawn charge. We'll learn more about the battle and how the Washington County Historical Society will observe the anniversary this weekend. That's in about 12 minutes. First, less than a year from now, millions of people are expected to trek across the United States and the world to our region to stare at the sky. A total solar eclipse is set to cut across Arkansas in April of 2024, and planning is already underway for the history-making event. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth has more. For the past six years, Shelley Alston in Mina has been preparing for an event that will last approximately four minutes, seven seconds. Here, I believe it's closer to four minutes, eight seconds. And she still has just under a year left to wait. That's because in 2024, a total solar eclipse, when the moon crosses the face of the sun, creating a celestial phenomenon, will make its way diagonally across the United States from Texas to Maine, going directly through southeast Oklahoma and the center of Arkansas. Dave Alford runs the Blue Moon Observatory in Hevener, Oklahoma, which is in the path of totality. He says the eclipse will cast a roughly 80-mile diameter-wide shadow, traveling at 1,700 miles per hour, and will create spectacular occurrences. The birds will go to roost. You'll hear the coyotes will start howling and stuff like that. There'll be um, this thing called shadow bands where you you throw a white sheet out on the ground and the, you can see ripples in the in the in the light going across it, you know, dark and light, dark and light, dark and light. If you get near a tree that's got leaves on it and put a sheet out underneath it, you can see thousands of little little tiny eclipses. The light peeping between the leaves makes uh, little tiny pinhole cameras and so you get little images like hundreds and hundreds of images of the sun. And of course, it uh, it helps us to helps us to refine the the, the timing uh, and motion of the solar system and the moon. The eclipse is projected to reach our region between 12:30 and 2 p.m. on April 8th. For Arkansas, the path cuts from Texarkana in the west to roughly Jonesboro in the east. Kim Williams with Arkansas Tourism says this is a big deal for the state because we do expect that it will be most likely the biggest event that Arkansas has ever seen. Williams says she remembers the last solar eclipse that brushed the United States back in 2017. And I was at my nearest Arkansas State Park, which is Mississippi River State Park, and my supervisor said, hey, go out, get some photos of people wearing the eclipse glasses and you know, and I honestly didn't think much about it. Now, in 2017, and it, we had great fun at the park, but honestly, I don't know that anyone, including the states within the path of totality in 2017, realized what an event it was going to be. That event was the first time that the continental U.S. had seen a total solar eclipse since 1918. And after the one next year, the country is not due for another until 2024, according to projections from NASA. Parts of 53 of our 75 counties in Arkansas are within the path of totality. You know, that's huge. But also, 
um, the time of pure solar darkness is nearly twice as long. In 2017, the longest period throughout the 12 states was 2 minutes and 45 seconds. In Arkansas, we have locations up to 4 minutes and 18 seconds. And all of that, Williams says, is expected to drive a huge number of people into the state. She says places in the 2017 eclipse path saw nearly triple their population in visitors and a record-breaking economic bump. 1.6 million people showed up in South Carolina in 2017. And the economic impact for one week, and probably not even one week, it was probably more like five days, was $269 million. She says a lot of the communities in places like South Carolina and Wyoming were shocked and unprepared for the influx of eclipse tourists. And while Williams says the numbers from that event are only a guide for 2024, she expects at least 1.5 million eclipse chasers to make their way to the natural state next year. So that means that there are things like there will be an increased... Um, influx of traffic. You know, restaurants will need to plan um, because more people will be in the community. They'll need somewhere to eat. They'll, you know, need things to do. And as of last weekend, one year out from the April 8th event, reservations at state parks across Arkansas were already filling up, according to a spokesperson for Arkansas State Parks Heritage and Tourism. About 25 state parks are expected to be in the path of totality, and Hot Springs National Park is one of only two national parks within the total solar eclipse. And Shelly Alston, who runs the Blue Zip Line and Farm outside of Mina in the Washita Forest, says she expects around four to 5,000 visitors just in her region. She says she's already booked spots for people from all over the world. And I've got them coming as uh, like uh, Oregon, Washington, Florida, a lot of people from California, even the UK, I've got booked. She says over the past six years, she's worked to make her 160 acres more accessible and is putting on a week-long festival for campers ahead of the eclipse. Everything from porta-potties to septic systems, electrical plans for our new showers, um, so all the campers can have uh, you know, some hot showers while they're here. And um, vendors, uh, getting everything you know, prepared on where, where the vendors are going to be. Uh, where are the RV sites going to be? How many can we fit in one area? And then a lot of uh, networking, getting ideas off of, you know, from, from other people, uh, sharing ideas, town hall meetings, just, uh, you know, planning for anything that could happen and uh, everything that you hope will happen. And Williams says it's important for people who may end up hosting these solar eclipse watchers to think well beyond those four or so minutes in order to get the most out of this once-in-a-lifetime event. People came into the eclipse communities in 2017, three, four, five days before the actual eclipse. Statistically, they have expendable income, the people that chase the eclipse. They're well-educated. They are going to be very respectful of our communities and our state. They want to learn things while they're in Arkansas. And she expects it won't just extend to communities directly in the path of totality. 
two-thirds of our state in this path of totality. You know, you can drive anywhere in Arkansas within three or four hours, regardless of which corner that you're at. So the majority of locations outside the path of totality, you can still drive to that path, that full path of darkness, within an hour, hour and a half, two hours max. And Dave Alford says the most important thing to remember, no matter where you're looking up from next April, is to bring some eye protection. Even a second exposure, looking at the sun with the naked eye, can cause permanent damage to your eyes. I prefer to use the Mylar Eclipse glasses. The only time it's safe to look at directly without the glasses is while the sun is in totality, and they know when to put them back on before it pops back out again. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carruth. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Over the past couple of years, KUAF has expanded beyond just the airwaves to podcasts. That's right. And we've got a lot of podcast news right now. Yes, we do. Daniel Carruth, who we just heard, he has just completed, because he's the producer of Points of Departure, the second season, the last episode of season two of Points of Departure, produced in the Karen Taha News Studio, available now. And he told me this morning, season three is coming very soon. Sounds like a reliable source. Speaking of reliable sources, next episode of Undiscipline, produced by me, uh, drops tomorrow. We'll have an excerpt of that conversation on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large. Uh, that season will run through the end of the school year, so we'll hear a few more episodes up through the end of May. You can find that by searching for Undisciplined in your podcast feed. The first episode of The Beloved Community, we heard an excerpt last week on Ozarks. It's a co-production with the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council and KUAF. It's out now. It's a conversation with Dr. Charles Robinson, Chancellor at the University of Arkansas. Yep. The Another podcast we have is The R Word. We had season one that aired uh, earlier. Now season two is coming soon. That's produced by KUAF's general manager, Lee Wood. Plus, there are episodes, recent episodes of Resilient Black Women, uh, lunch hour conversations, conversations between someone at KUAF and the artist and the guest chef Mm -hmm. for the lunch hours. Those are available. Blockchain, the future of money, also available. And this show right here, Ozarks at Large, every day that you hear this on the radio, you can hear it in your podcast feed as well, and Sound Perimeter, the show, the show. The feature we do every week with Leah Uribe, Sound Perimeter, that is available in podcast form as well. I will just listen to Leah Uribe's voice all day long if yeah, I'm me too. Sona, the Symphony of Northwest Arkansas, concludes its season Saturday, April 29th at Walton Arts Center with Evoking Folklore, performing works by Jared Tate, Manuel Dafala, and Aaron Copeland, each a storytelling of folklore, from traditional Spanish stories to Chickasaw Nation tales and classic Americana. Tickets at sonamusic.org. Ahead, the Northwest Arkansas Makers Club promotes the creative work of hundreds of people from Northwest Arkansas. After the group started, we just got this flood of people saying, oh, I make this in my garage. Oh, I make this in my studio. Can I be in the group? And it just really exploded. And I think that the real niche that our group has fit into, because there are a lot of group markets and shows, and I mean, there's one, and we actually do promote that because we are about community arts and I personally am a community arts advocate, so I would like, you know, I want everyone to succeed. 
But as far as we're concerned, the niche that we fit into is that all of our makers are within a 50-mile radius of Fayetteville. Shelley Mober and Bo Dutton are the co-founders of the Northwest Arkansas Makers Club and are Randy Wilburn's guests on this week's episode of the I Am Northwest Arkansas podcast. We'll hear an excerpt later on today's show. Erica Westerman is a professor of biological sciences at the U of A. An entomologist, her research focuses on understanding how organisms perceive and interact with their environment and how variations in these interactions facilitate diversity. A recent grant will support her research on the role of genetics and ambient light in shaping the visual sensitivity and behavior of butterflies. I use butterflies to understand behavior because butterflies, I just really think, the best group of animals to work with. They're incredibly speciose, so many species. The Lepidoptera, which is butterflies and moths, are second only to beetles in terms of number of species. And when I started my PhD, I got the opportunity to kind of accidentally start working with butterflies and just completely fell in love with the system. You can hear more in the latest edition of Short Talks from the Hill, a research podcast from the University of Arkansas. Listen at KUAF.com, at arkansasresearch.uark.edu, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Ozarks at Large. Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders has signed a tax cut bill. She says the bill will remove $36 million from the corporate income tax and $150 million from the state's personal income tax. Senator Jonathan Dismang says the tax cuts are a continuation of cuts made in 2015 and that they will affect 1.1 million Arkansans. When we consolidated tables, we cut taxes for individuals that had never received a tax cut here in the state. Uh, the folks that were kind of in between the tables, and, and that impacted more our Kansas at a greater degree than even what we're talking about here today. Uh, but again, that was what we decided to do first, um, and this is just a reflection of the continued path to drive that top rate down. The governor also plans to sign into law a bill to extend the sentences of violent criminals, which could cost the state millions of dollars. The governor also passed expensive education legislation, which will cost large sums of taxpayer money. Critics have worried these laws will be unaffordable in addition to tax cuts the governor supports. She does not share this concern. I'm really confident in our path forward. We've made sure uh, that we can fully fund both Arkansas Learns as well as the criminal justice reform package, at the same time delivering on the promise to continue chipping away at our state's income tax. Governor Sanders promised to continue phasing out the state income tax going forward. Yesterday, poultry workers at a Tyson plant in Van Buren went on strike to protest the mishandling of their severance pay and poor working conditions after Tyson announced the plant would be closing last month. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith was there and reports. Beginning at 5.30 in the morning, more than an estimated 60 to 80 workers showed up to protest the Van Buren Tyson plant, with many joining the picket line as they arrived for their shifts. While chanting, the struggle will persist and the people united will never be defeated, Over 300 workers signed a petition requesting changes in a plant that employs close to 1,000 employees. They're requesting Tyson for equal treatment compared to supervisor and corporate employees, full severance payouts based on the number of years worked, payout of unused vacation time, accountability for workers' compensation and injury claims, and fair working conditions. Maria Rubalcaba has worked for the Van Buren Tyson plant for over 16 years. She is a sole breadwinner in her family, has been injured on the job, and says she still has years to go before retiring. 
leaving her with few options as the plant closes on May 12th. She said during the pandemic, they supposedly recognized our work by putting a plaque on the front door saying we are heroes, but now they're throwing the heroes away. We, the heroes in charge of Tyson's production, are also in charge of making their money. And we know clearly that Tyson has made a considerable amount of money during the pandemic, many billions. And now they're using us again with even more pressure this time around. So many of us have been hurt. And for a lot of people, they can't get jobs elsewhere. Tyson Foods, in a statement, said they're offering relocation assistance and financial incentives to team members. Team members with unused vacation or holiday time will be paid in full. For Ozarks at Large and Van Buren, I'm Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Talk Business and Politics reports former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson will continue to make appearances in Iowa this week. Iowa is the first state that will caucus as part of the 2024 GOP nomination process. He told ABC News earlier this month he will seek the party's nomination for the White House. And a formal announcement will be made later this month in Bentonville. This week's trip to Iowa is his sixth this year. Two new executive orders issued by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday extend two prior orders she gave concerning Arkansas counties impacted by the March 31st tornado outbreak. Governor Sanders yesterday extended an emergency declaration for the state until further notice. It also directs $3 million from the governor's disaster response and recovery fund to be used by state emergency officials for program and administrative costs. Certain regulating statutes have also been suspended for state emergency management, human services, and education agencies. Meanwhile, a second order extends tax filing deadlines to July 31st and waives certain fees and penalties for titles and vehicle registrations for residents in Pulaski, Lone Oak, and Cross Counties. Four Arkansas banks are on the just-released Forbes list of best banks in the world. Fayetteville-based Arvest Bank, Bank OZK, headquartered in Little Rock, Simmons Bank, based in Pine Bluff, and Centennial Bank in Conway are among the 29 banks in the United States included on that Forbes list. In all, 415 banks from around the world made the list based on customer satisfaction and customers' willingness to recommend. The Bank of Oklahoma, based in Tulsa, and Bank First in Oklahoma City, also on the list. 18-time Grammy Award winner Sting will be at the Walmart Amp this fall. It was announced this morning he'll be in Rogers on Thursday, October 12th, as part of the Cox Concert Series. General sales of tickets start Friday. Prices range from $39 to $179. Can you imagine only paying $39 to see Sting? I can't. That's why I probably might. <laughs> the fifth-ranked Arkansas Razorback baseball team opens a two-game series against Little Rock at Baum Stadium tonight. Arkansas took two of three at Mississippi this past weekend. And the number 9 Razorback softball team is in Conway tonight for a matchup with Central Arkansas. The Razorbacks are back home this weekend for a non-conference series against Alabama-Birmingham. The Sunday game of that series will now start at noon. Before sunrise on April 18, 1863, the town of Fayetteville was in the midst of a Civil War battle. While not as large as the battles that took place in Pea Ridge or Prairie Grove, families lost loved ones and homes were destroyed and damaged. The Battle of Fayetteville's main conflict came at what is now the intersection of College and Dixon Streets, near the campus of the now-gone Arkansas College. 
College Avenue's namesake. This Saturday, three days shy of the battle's 160th anniversary, the Washington County Historical Society will observe that anniversary from 10 until 4. There will be a reenactment of the battle Saturday afternoon at 1 at the headquarters house on Dixon Street. Jim Spillers, the chairman of the Battle of Fayetteville Committee, came to the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio recently to talk about what's going to happen in just a few days and what happened 160 years ago. The battle raged from approximately 5.45 in the morning with the first shots being fired to uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning, the last charge happening just slightly after 9 o'clock. The, uh, the way the battle opened, um, on East, what is now East Huntsville Road, there was a, what we would call uh, pickets, which was Federal Army soldiers on guard patrol. Mm-hmm. And they were overrun by the Confederate Army moving this way early that morning. It had been a, between 530 and 545. Uh, the area now would be approximately where uh, Huntsville Road breaks off of uh, MLK there around Mashburn, Lighton Street, those streets in Fayetteville. So south of the intersection. Yes, right? yeah. south and east of the intersection. Southeast, right. And uh, the pickets were overran at that point, and uh, in fact, I believe all four of them were killed. And those shots being fired alerted the Federals here in Fayetteville, because that would have been the outskirts certainly at that time, that something was happening. They The federal command was on alert. They knew the Confederates were moving this way. They didn't know when they were going to get here exactly. So they were preparing for battle. And then the Confederates would come into the spring area of Spring Street and then come up the hill in mass, mainly on foot. That would seem to make you a good target. But I guess it's under the cover of darkness. It was still, it was still dark, early morning hours. And before they charged up the hill, there were two cannon functioning. They actually brought three with them. But there were three cannons set up up the hill, what we would call Mount Sequoia now, about where Olive Street crosses Dixon, somewhere between Olive and Dixon Corner down within two blocks south on one of the flatter areas there. Now, two of the cannons were functional. One, the carriage broke down. So they started bombarding the area before the assault before the men literally charged up the hill. They did strike the Baxter house, we know, with a cannonball because uh, descriptions of the incident still exist in in diaries. And then uh, the Confederate Army charged up the hill. Of course, the Federals were waiting for them in and around Headquarters House, what we know now as Headquarters House, the Tebbets home. And so they would repulse the attack with the Confederates turning and going back across Again, what was Arkansas College then, the grounds of the uh, Washington County Courthouse First Christian Church, now back into the Spring Street area. And the artillery bombardment would continue until a group of first Arkansas federal soldiers, both a mixture of cavalry and infantrymen, were led up the hill by a Lieutenant Robb. Lieutenant Robb took those men up the hill and they shot at the Confederate cannoneers wounding at least one, killing one, and then the Confederate cannons withdrew. Now, the Confederates said that they were out of ammunition. The Federals said that they had forced them off the hill. But after the Confederate cannon ceased fire, then we have the charge that is depicted. We have, we have a painting by local artist Daniel Hofbauer of the charge of Fayetteville, and it's called Action at Fayetteville, the actual uh, 
painting, I say we, the Washington Historical Society, has that painting on display in Headquarters House. And uh, the Confederates, largely on horseback, came riding up Dixon Street, firing again at the Federals. The Federals were also primarily cavalrymen, but they were dismounted. They were not on their horses. They were in the yard of Headquarters House and all along Dixon Street there firing back. And again, the area right at the intersection of College and Dixon Street became known as Bloody Corner because most of the casualties happened right there as the Confederate Army was turned. And then they decided to uh, leave the area after that charge that happened between 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning. When I think of this area, obviously Arkansas College campus is not residential now, but a lot of that rest of that area, especially back towards where the Confederates are coming up, is homes now. Were there people living? Was this a residential? There were a few homes in that area. Largely, a lot of that ground was Arkansas College campus. Okay. And uh, we know that um, Jack McGar's cabin was there. A little further down Dixon Street, there would have been some other sparsely you know, built homes in that area, but mainly it was open ground. In fact, today we think of all the trees in Fayetteville. At that point in time, there were not right. the tree coverage that there is now. This was more of an open prairie area with trees being used, of course, for houses and fences. But also, we weren't that far out, honestly, historically, from when the buffalo would have roamed this area. And there would not have been the trees that we think of in this area then. i just imagining how scary, how frightening it would have been at 5.15 in the morning on a spring morning to start hearing all of this noise and carnage. Well, the you know, the citizens were probably somewhat warned by the federal command. Okay. They knew something was going to happen. Again, they didn't know when, but with that, you know, imagining, you know, cannon fire, you know, being aimed at your house. The One of the positives, I guess, for the citizens in the square area was it was largely ignored by the Confederate Army because they were trying to take the federal command mm. and fight the Federals. The uh, In fact, the area where uh, Wilson Park is today in the pool – that was actually the encampment for the first Arkansas federal infantry that was being organized. Those men were largely at that point unarmed and ununiformed. It was their training camp. The uh, con- the uh, excuse me, the federal cavalry, the first Arkansas Union cavalry, was largely camped around where Ozark Natural Foods is today, and uh, across the street where uh, AutoZone that area. Mm-hmm. That would have been the Federal Cavalry Camp with their command headquarters being the Tebbets home, now the uh, headquarters house, the home of the Washington Historical Society. Some of the officers, including Lieutenant um, E.L. Harrison, the younger brother of the Federal Commander of the Post, which was uh, M. LaRue Harrison, his younger brother E.L. was actually renting a room in the Baxter home, and he was one of the first ones to be made aware that the Confederates were actually charging because he was in his room at the Baxter house, and they were charging right for his home. So he was able to get across, you know, flee the Baxter home, get across the street to headquarters house, as we now know it, and alert his brother and his command staff to what was going on and what he had seen. So every April, there is an observation. Yes, we have a commemoration of the Battle of Fayetteville every April. 
And uh, it's the third Saturday in April, always, whether sometimes it falls on the actual anniversary, sometimes not. And we will be having that on the headquarters house grounds this year. The event runs from 10 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon with various programs. We have uh, living historians who will be doing uh, civilian life. Uh, We have a group coming actually from Hunter's Home in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, Park Hill area that – they're part of the Oklahoma State Park system. They're coming over to do programs about the United States Sanitary Commission. Mm. We have a gentleman who is a uh, retired from the uh, Police and Fire Academy. He was an EMT trainer and medical trainer there that does um, historic medicine. He will be there all day. Uh, Daniel Hoffbauer, who's a local artist who painted um, Action at Fayetteville in addition to several paintings for both the Prairie Grove Battlefield State Park and the Pea Ridge National Military Park, will be there at 11 o'clock. He'll be there all day, but at 11 o'clock specifically be doing a program about his painting and what um, the influences were for his painting. We will have um, living historians doing musket demonstrations. We will have a cannon crew doing artillery demonstrations. And then at 1 o'clock, we plan to do a skirmish-sized reenactment of the battle, which some of the things we're going to portray is Lieutenant Rob taking his men to silence the cannons and then um, skirmishers reenacting a very small version of the charge. Now, they will be all acting as dismounted cavalry. We will not have any horses. But just, just small vignettes showing this is what it would have been somewhat like for the residents of Fayetteville in 1863. You know, we know about Prairie Grove. We know about Pea Ridge. But this just shows that this was – there were these skirmishes other places where you might have a lower casualty count. But like you said, it was a tragedy for the families involved. Yes. People lost their lives. And, you know, you think about local homes being opened as hospitals, mm-hmm. not just for the big battles but for this battle. And – you know, it was it affected the entire community. Fayetteville would actually change hands six times during the war. Really? Yes. And uh, headquarters house was almost always the focus of being. It was the a headquarters. That's why it's called headquarters house. It was on the periphery of the main town, so it was a little bit out. There was areas for staff to live. There were areas for horses to be foddered, and so. It, it was a very select area, and so literally the Confederates first having taken possession of Fayetteville, they would evacuate, and the Federals would come in for a short time. They would leave. The Confederates came back and then left after the Battle of Pea Ridge. When General McCullough was killed, he would have used headquarters house for a time. Then, of course, the Federal Cavalry, the 1st Arkansas Cavalry, Emily Rue Harrison, taking headquarters house over and defending it as a federal unit. These men, again, we don't always understand. People think that Arkansas was purely a Confederate state. The population was very split, and most of the men serving in the 1st Arkansas Federal Cavalry and Infantry were men from this part of Arkansas in the River Valley. We're talking a lot of Washington, Madison County men who were fighting, you know, quite literally for their homes. Mm-hmm. A lot of, uh, you know, a lot of them were literally local people. Do we know if life would change for citizens not in either army when a different flag, like the American flag goes down, the Confederate flag goes up? Would life change for the Fayetteville citizen? Certainly. If you were 
if you were loyal to one side or the other, depending upon who was here. Um, for instance, Judge Tabbitts, Jonas Tabbitts, that built, had the home built that we know as headquarters house. He was pro-union. He rescued the uh, American flag from the courthouse before the Confederates first took over and, and kept it hidden in his uh, basement. And he gave it to Colonel Asboth when the federal forces came in to be flown over the uh, courthouse again. He was arrested by General McCullough, the Confederate general, when he came back in and was actually sent to Fort Smith. And he was going to be hung for being, quote, unquote, a damn Yankee mm. by McCullough. And what saved his life was a uh, – basically, McCullough was scouting in front of the 16th Arkansas at the Battle of Pea Ridge on the first day. And a member of the 36th Illinois takes credit for having shot him through the heart and killed him. And the uh, – basically – Tebbets was acquitted and sent home. Mm. Now, the story doesn't end there because one of their pro-Confederate neighbors warned his wife after he was home that there were a group of men that were going to come and hang him. And so he left and eventually would take his family. He initially went north to the uh, Elkhorn Tavern, which was one of the stops on the Wire Road. Of course, Fayetteville being the major settlement on the Wire Road between um, – Springfield and Van Buren. So he basically had to escape for his life and would come back with when the federal army came back and gathered his family and they moved to basically initially St. Charles, Missouri, ending up living in different places and finally in uh, Kentucky. Wow. But so it it that that's a story of yes, it depended upon your loyalties, you could be treated well or you could be treated very poorly. One of the things that a, a newspaper article does quote at the time talked about, this was in February of 63, before the Battle of Fayetteville. One of the newspapers in another part of Arkansas reported that the citizens of northwest Arkansas, basically whether you were a uh, wealthy planter or you were a uh, – what was the word they used? Basically, it would be a, a poor person. I think the uh, – they, I can't remember the word, but um, you were on equal footing as far as being destitute at that point from the richest to the poorest person. Very few crops had been planted, and those that were both armies as they came through took advantage of. Therefore, the local citizen was left with next to nothing, if not nothing. So it was a very, very difficult time for the average citizen in northwest Arkansas during the entirety of the war, but especially after those initial armies moving through here in uh, – late or well early 1862 all the way to the end of the war and early thereafter. Jim Spillers is the chairman of the Battle of Fayetteville Committee with the Washington County Historical Society. An observation of the battle's 160th anniversary takes place at the headquarters house on Dixon Street Saturday from 10 to 4 with the battle reenactment taking place at 1. At 3:30 Saturday there will be a reading of the names of those lost in battle. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents Diego Rivera's America, the first major exhibition focused solely on the Mexican artist in over 20 years. It features his works, digital projections of his murals, and three major paintings by Frida Kahlo. On view now through July 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. This is Ozarks at Large. This week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas with Randy Wilburn celebrates the creative community of our region. Bo Dutton, a woodworker, and Shelley Mover, the co-founders of Northwest Arkansas Makers Club, sat down with Randy in our Furman Garner Performance Studio to discuss their work 
and how they work with similar organizations in the region. They're behind the upcoming NWA Makers Market, taking place Sunday, April 30th at the Washington County Fairgrounds. Part of their conversation centered on the term maker. I'm, you know, primarily in fine art, whereas Bo's in the maker community, per se. Like, but so I had a hard time distinguish, distinguishing artisan, you know, between maker. And, and in the beginning of our group and social media, I did tend to use artisan because I wanted it to encompass any type of creation. But there is a whole makers movement going on now. And that encompasses really anything creative that you make. Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure Bo has quite a bit to add to that. Yeah. I, I think that we landed on the term maker just because it seemed more inclusive and encompassing of of all types of creatives than anything else that we could think up. And we really wanted the community to appeal not just to painters or woodworkers or potters, but also musicians or writers or anybody who just feels like they're a creative. And people come in in all levels of their makerhood. I don't know. Right. I don't know the right word to say, but you've got people that are just hobbyists poking around, seeing what kind of creative avenues are out there. You've got people doing it as a side hustle. You've got people, we've got a couple of makers who have real brick and mortar storefronts. Have yeah, since yeah. actually had their brick and mortar That's right. while and we've they've got, been in our group. Yeah. And we've got people progressing through those stages. Yeah. People started out as hobbyists are now moving up, making it a side hustle or making it a full-time gig. And that's kind of where everything originated. I personally was just a hobbyist woodworker out of my garage. And then COVID hit. My wife works in the hospital. I didn't want to bring anything that she might bring home from the hospital to my place of work. Sure. And we had a young child, six month old. And so I quit my job and said, let's see if I can make a go at this woodworking thing. A few months into it, I signed up for a show. I met Shelly there and realized that there are a lot of people around here doing this. And I didn't necessarily realize it. But after the group started, we just got this flood of people saying, oh, I make this in my garage. Oh, I make this in my studio. Can I be in the group? And it just really exploded. And I think that the real niche that our group has fit into, because there are a lot of group markets and shows. And I mean, there's one. And we actually do promote that because we are about community arts. And I personally am a community arts advocate. So I would like, you know, I want everyone to succeed. But as far as we're concerned, the niche that we fit into is that all of our makers are within a 50 mile radius of Fayetteville. Okay. And so. Which comprises all of Northwest Arkansas. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we have people in Hiawassee, in Gravit, in Decatur, in, you know, Huntsville, in Springdale, Rogers. I mean, the list goes on and on. And sure. so it's amazing to watch all of these people come together. We've got a really active, um, I've been in a few other groups and we've got an amazing active group. Our yeah. members, you know, consistently are participating, sharing, cross-promoting, and uh, that's what makes our group successful. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, as I think about it, again, there are a number of what I call ecosystems in Northwest Arkansas where, you know, small businesses, smaller entrepreneurs and creatives have a place to thrive. I, one place I think about is the farmer's market. And what that's meant to people over the years. And I know that's a, that has made a huge difference. We have 
at least 10 makers that do Fayetteville Farmers Market. Okay. Yeah. So, and that makes yes. sense, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. it is, you know, I've actually interviewed one of the founders of the Fayetteville Farmers Market. And, you know, they talk about the importance of having that platform and how there's a lot of structure there that you wouldn't realize it, right? It's like they don't allow just anybody to show up. And I think that that is important in terms of creating an environment like this. Yeah. And I think one thing to note is, you know how they say, make someone your best friend before you marry him. We kind of started this group in the thickest part of COVID. And so the most interaction we were able to have with everybody was just in an online group setting where everyone was posting pictures of things they make and getting to know each other and asking questions. And we really grew a lot as a group in that time before we ever started having any events or markets or anything like that. And I think the thing that allowed us to be so successful is that we really just try to make it part of our identity to be inclusive and to be promoting everyone always constantly, even if Another woodworker said, hey, I made this cool stuff and I'm trying to sell it. Can you guys promote me? As a woodworker myself, my initial reaction might be to say, oh, let's you know bury this guy so I can... But we've just made it a number one priority to equally cross-promote everyone and make everyone feel not only supported and in a safe space where they can ask questions or ask advice or show off things they're making, but also not feel any sense of unhealthy competition among any of the makers that we have in our club. That's absolutely true. And one of the things that I enjoy most about makers group during the period of time that we're not completely overrun with preparing for a market is that I have freak, I can't even count on, on my fingers how many times I've had one of our makers reach out to me and say, I've never shown before. What, you know, how do I do this? Or can you direct me to this? Or how did you get to this point? Right. You know, and so it's 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 such a great feeling to be able to say, well, hey, this I don't know exactly about this artwork because I'm not involved in, let's say, epoxy art, mm-hmm. right? But I'll tell you my situation, and I know this because of how we've established this community. I can out of the blue pull an epoxy artist out of my mind and say. I know that this person will talk to you about how they, you know, show things or how they display things because I may not know that exact answer. Shelly Mober and Bo Dutton are co-founders of the Northwest Arkansas Makers Club and spoke with Randy Wilburn in the Firm and Garner Performance Studio. The entire conversation can be heard as this week's episode of I Am Northwest Arkansas, which can be found at KUAF.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This month for the lunch hour, we're taking it up a notch. We're having the lunch hour at Bike Rack Brewing located at 801 Southeast 8th Street, Bentonville, Arkansas, 72712. Hosted by City Sessions featuring music from Aurora Lie and food from Nash Nola. You don't want to miss this month's lunch hour happening at Bike Rack Brewing from noon to one. Located at 802 Southeast 8th Street, Bentonville, Arkansas. Food from Nash Nola and music from Aurora Lie. Hosted by City Sessions. We'll see you there. Songs for a New World, the next production from the University of Arkansas Theater, is a show in its own category. A musical, but one that spans different times. We see actors appear and reappear, but not as the same characters as before, though there is a through line for each song we hear. Jason Robert Brown's tunes take us to a pivotal point for each character when a decision sends a life in a specific direction. 
Sometimes as few as four actors take on all the songs. The university production, opening Friday on the theater stage on campus, will use a dozen undergraduate actors. Yesterday, Morgan Hicks, the production's director and a member of the U of A faculty, came to the Carver Center for Public Radio to talk about Songs for a New World. So the play is a song cycle, and by that it is um, all songs by one composer, Jason Robert Brown. Um, And it was created when he was a very young man. Um, So he was, the story goes that he was like 20. He came to New York um, with a a pile of of songs written for musicals that he wanted to write, but he hadn't written the whole musicals yet. Um, So they were kind of like the greatest hits. And um, he was using them to kind of pitch uh, his his abilities as a composer and his abilities to like partner up with, um, with book writers to write musicals. And none of these songs ever found their way into a musical. They were all like the best songs of an idea that didn't quite launch, right? right. Um, but they're all amazing songs. Like, each one is a bop. Um, but uh, but he he came with this pile of songs. And then he met uh, Daisy Prince, who was, like, the daughter of Hal Prince, um, a famous Broadway mm-hmm. producer. And she loved all the songs, but she didn't necessarily um, have the, the capacity to, like, create it or to, to craft it into a musical. So they just went ahead with the idea that, like, these are all just beautiful songs. Each one of them is a story. Um, they kind of created a little bit of a motif, a little through line um, uh, in this idea of the songs for a new world, the new world right around the corner. Um, everything is like, you know, the promise of something or the choice that you make that, that leads you down one certain path or another. Um, and uh, and they just kind of leaned into the theme of it, but didn't necessarily try to make each character have a journey individually. So that's what's happening. It's often done, you mentioned four actors, it's often done with four. So it's often done with two men, two women. That's kind of how you would traditionally see it presented. Um, But we wanted to um, blow that out a little bit. We wanted to expand and give more opportunities for our students. Uh, This show is all undergrad performers. uh, And so we just had too many of them show up and and with so much talent at the audition that we wanted to give them all uh, opportunities to sing. So we gave them all solos. That's great. I have read people who have performed this have said it's a bit of a challenge that that the vocal ranges here are yeah are because it is genre defying absolutely yeah i think that that jason robert brown is such a wonderful um composer he he did um the last five years parade some really really beautiful um beautiful work and he really showcases um his skill in these pieces they're hard to sing. They're really, really challenging. And they are off also really hard to bring meaning to without the context of a full play, right? And so you are really relying on that performer to, to uh, share a pivotal moment in their life, but really to be able to like give um, the audience enough reason to care about that person. Characters heft. Right, yeah. So I would imagine that some of that relies then on you. I think so. I think that when we were working, um, the performers and I, we were really looking at, you know, looking at the backstory for these characters, what what brings them to this moment that we don't get the, the benefit of the play to tell us, right? We have to come come up with that on our own. We worked with a costume designer to kind of build a world out. Um, and so, uh, so we, we placed 
um, some of the songs in different decades. So we're kind of telling a whole the story of America in a way. Um, but we we looked at all of the the ways that we could make things specific, right? As opposed to just being a, gen- a generic beautiful song. We wanted mm-hmm. it to mean something to that character. Um, so when we when we drop in with the flag maker um, and she's you know singing about you know the cost of uh, independence and how you know it's it it's an idea for some people, but it's the life of her child or her husband, um, and all she can do is sit here sewing a star onto a piece of fabric, and that's her only contribution that she's able to give. Um, we wanted her, her to understand, like, specifically, who is that husband to you? What is that cost to you? And um, and what are the, the worst-case scenarios, the best-case scenarios, all of that work that actors are able to do? But there's no book. There's no scene. Like, everything is within the song. Right. Yeah. What do you do for a set? Because you might be on the deck of a ship. You might be at a high mm-hmm. rise. You are in all. <laughs> you are in those places. Um, so we, as we were beginning the work um, of deciding what we wanted the environment to be, um, we really did kind of get latched onto that metaphor of a ship. There's a literal ship in the song um, on this on the deck of the Spanish sailing ship 1492. That's one of the early songs in the in the um, in the show, and so that's a literal environment. But then we began to think about like that that ship as a metaphor. Um, I had read this beautiful uh, advice column, um, Dear Sugar, and it was talking about like when you um, make a choice in your life, you can't live in the regret of that choice that you didn't make. And she used the metaphor of uh, that choice that you didn't make becomes a ghost ship in your life and it floats away from you. And um, and it holds all of that promise um, of what that could have been, but it doesn't have to haunt you in a way that makes you regret. Um, you can release the ghost ship. And so we really loved that idea of a ghost ship. So we're on a literal ship, but then that ghost ship of possibilities becomes the environment for the entire play. Um, and so our, our scenic designer really like kind of gravitated towards that. And, and so that's the environment that we're in. It's a beautiful, uh, uh, the deck of a beautiful ship that we're on. Morgan Hicks is directing the University of Arkansas Theater production of Songs for a New World, opening Friday night on campus. Performances will continue through a matinee on Sunday, April 23rd. Morgan talked with Kyle yesterday in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. Speaking of performances, this weekend, the University of Arkansas School of Cantorum will present Considering Matthew Shepard by Craig Hallow Johnson. Stephen Caldwell, Associate Professor, Choral Activities at the University, says he's ready for an audience to hear the work. At that time, I heard the work, and I just thought, you know, this is something I absolutely want to conduct someday. This is something I absolutely want to teach students someday. And so from then, it was just a matter of waiting uh, for the right time. I would have done this a lot earlier, but uh, we all know what happened in March of 2020. And so probably this would have come up either fall of 2020 or spring of 2021, on a natural progression of events for the choir. Um, but uh, once the pandemic shut everything down, we were shut down for 2021. And then largely for 21-22, we started to come out of, of things in, um, in spring of 22. And this is our first year that we're really, we'll call it back to normal and back at full forces. That's on tomorrow's Ozarks at Large at noon and at 7 p.m. on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. On the first episode of the newest podcast from KUAF and the Northwest Arkansas Martin Luther King Jr. Council, The Beloved Community, University of Arkansas Chancellor Dr. Charles Robinson speaks with host Lindsay Leverett about his work at the University of Arkansas and about his commitment to the land-grant mission of the University of Arkansas. 
to help create a better future for individuals and society as a whole. Thinking about how, again, in everything that we do, what those who are least among us in terms of their resources, what impact it would have on them. I think that is in line with Dr. King and his dream and, and, and the responsibility we have as campus leaders to build this beloved community. Listen and subscribe to the Beloved Community Podcast for free at KUAF.com or anywhere you get your podcasts. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, Poto, Oklahoma. Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. Contributors today included Daniel Carruth, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and Randy Wilburn. We also heard content produced by the news staff at KUAR in Little Rock. Our director of community engagement at KUAF is Jasper Logan. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Matthew, earlier this hour uh, when we were talking about Sting, it was announced this morning that Mm -hmm. Sting will play at the Rogers Amp in October. I mentioned that he was an 18-time Grammy Award winner. I didn't realize it was that many. Did you know he's been nominated for an Oscar four times? No, for acting or for music? No, for music. I mean, no shade on his acting, but no. You never know. But can you recall what songs he was, what movies he had songs he was nominated for? Because I will tell you, what I didn't come up with any of them. What decade? All of them since 2000. Really? <laughs> oh, man. So this is like Brand New Day era, like uh, like Desert Rose era kind of stuff? Well, starting there. Okay. Man, I have no idea. In 2000, he was nominated for the song My Funny Friend and Me from The Emperor's New Groove. Really? He did... Did he do all the music in that movie? I don't just... know. I don't know. I, I have wow. not heard of that movie until today. Are you kidding? Hang on. You've never heard of The Emperor's New Groove? It's an animated movie, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe I've heard oh of it. Oh, my gosh. It's so good. It's a very underrated Disney film. Watch okay. it this I'll, weekend. Okay. All right. I have homework. He was also nominated a year later for the song Until from Kate and Leopold. I've know. seen that movie. In 2003, You Will Be My Ain True Love from Cold Mountain. That was the one he did with uh-huh. Alison Krauss. Yeah. Then in 2016, The Empty Chair from Jim, the James Foley story. Huh. So four times he's been nominated for an Oscar, but he has not won yet. Not yet. Not yet. We'll get there. Yeah. Good luck, Sting. He'll be here October. Well, not here. Well, that'd be great, wouldn't it? I but wouldn't he, mind it. Yeah. He'll be in Rogers on Thursday, October 12th. Tickets for his fan club go on sale Wednesday. Tickets for the rest of us go on sale Friday. I suppose we could join There's still time. All right. We are at the Carver Center for Public Radio. We've run out of time. Thanks so much for listening.